afternoon and uh, a very warm welcome here to uh, St Paul's, to each and every one of you, to this uh, Sunday Forum. My name is Mark Oakley and I work here at the Cathedral and it's my privilege today to welcome today's speaker. Uh, Julia Moran is a priest in the Church of England and she served over the years in a number of roles in both the Winchester and the Chelmsford Diocese, including vocations, recruitment and selection officer, joint director of ordinance and uh, lay training officer. She's been involved in the training and supervising of spiritual directors for many years, as well as offering uh, herself quiet days and retreats. Uh, Julia is also, I think it's a fantastic title this, I'm very <laughs> jealous, uh, scholar in residence at Sarum College in Salisbury, where she's responsible for the Sarum Certificate in Spiritual Direction. And her recent book, which only came out on the 30th of August, she only actually saw it herself yesterday, uh, is called Listening to Your Life, 30 Ways to Discern Direction for Your Future. And I know myself from the interest uh, that we had for our June retreat, what an important topic this is for people of faith, but also what a confused area it often feels. Uh, and I know that help is needed. And I, I think this book is a, a rare mixture of spiritual insight and practicality. And it does offer a way for all of us, no matter how distant we might feel from a sort of religious professionalism, to take this word vocation seriously as the way forward to consider the meaning, purpose, the direction uh, of our lives. So please, would you welcome today our guest speaker, Julia Moran. Good afternoon, and thank you very much to Mark for welcoming me. I'm very pleased to be here uh, at St Paul's this afternoon. And uh, I was very excited yesterday uh, to receive uh, in the post uh, a few copies of my Listening to Your Life book. Uh, as Mark said, I did only see it for the first time yesterday, but I did know what was in it. So it wasn't too much of a surprise or a shock. Now, I'm really pleased to be here to talk about... a theme which is very dear to my heart. Uh, that is vocations, vocational living, uh, finding your direction, your purpose uh, and your way in life. Now sometimes people think that the only people that have vocations are people who wear dog collars or special religious clothes but I firmly believe that everybody has a vocation uh, and I'm particularly keen on the idea that we can all, whoever we are, find out a little bit more about what that is. And at times in my life, I've wondered what I was supposed to be doing and how I would know what I was supposed to be doing. And at other times, I've had a sense that I did know what I was supposed to be doing, but I couldn't work out how I was supposed to do it. And then I might have a few words with God and say, have you thought this through? Because you seem to have asked me to do something which on the face of it appears impossible due to circumstances or whatever else it may be in life. So 
I used to think about that and then I found myself drawn into ways of accompanying other people on their vocational journey. Uh, somebody asked me many years ago now to be their spiritual director and I thought what's that? I don't know, I've never really heard of that. But we decided that we would explore together and it was a learning curve for me. I then became drawn into, much later, when I found out a bit more about how to do it, the training of spiritual directors. And then I found myself involved in lay training and eventually as a director of ordinance accompanying people on their journey, not just towards ordination but also to a variety of lay ministries. And I always felt in my job as a director of vocations and ordination that my job was not done until the person I was meeting with had, dis had discovered a bit more about who they were and where they were going. And it was not about getting people through a process which they would either succeed or fail in, but it was about discovering their path. That's really important. Anyway, I'd like to get straight to the point um, with an example of my theme today, which is about the way in which metaphor, imagination, and creative thinking can really speak to us and help us to discern our path, our purpose and our direction. Thinking is really important, but thinking doesn't always get us to where we need to be. Thinking can sometimes even get in the way. So I'm going to give you an example and you've got in front of you, on one side of your handout, a picture that looks like this. It's a clock which, I'm sure you'll have noticed, has no hands, and this is why you need a pen. But wait, please do not think yet about writing anything, because there are a few things that I need to say which may affect the way in which you address this question. What time is your life? Now, the first thing I want to say is that if you think about this question, what time is your life? you really can't work it out logically or mathematically. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with your age. So if you're already thinking, well, I'm such an urchin age, that makes it kind of two o'clock in the afternoon or 10 o'clock at night, forget it, because that's not at all where we're going. Youth does not mean morning. Middle age does not mean afternoon. And evening does not mean later life. Let me illustrate with a story. At one time we were in a parish, and my husband, who's a parish priest, and, and myself, and there was a young lady there and she was planning to celebrate her 21st birthday. And she was going to have a great party. And she invited all her friends and her family and everybody. So she said to her great-grandmother, who was of some significant age, Great-grandmother, I really want you to come to my birthday party. It's going to be a fantastic occasion. Please, please come. Put it in your diary. I know it's not till next year, but I really want you there. Well, her great-grandmother looked a bit worried and a bit sad, and she said, well, darling, I would have loved to have come to your party, but, you know, I really don't know that I'm going to be able to make it. I'm very sorry. Well, thinking that her elderly great-grandmother was sort of numbering her days, this young lady said, no, don't say that. Look
look at you, you're fine. You know, you've got your tablets, you've got your this, that and the other, you look after yourself, you'll be fine. I really want you to be there. So her great-grandmother says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I'm not thinking of going anywhere like that. I'm going on a cruise. <laughs> so she had plans. She was very amused. Maybe for her, it was round about breakfast time. She still had plenty of living to do. So you need a pencil or a pen if you've got one ready. And just for a moment, don't think about how old you are, but listen to an inner place. And aware of your hopes, your dreams, your responsibilities, the things you have to do, the things you want to do, the things which are part of your world right now, if your life had a time, what would it be? Don't think about it. Let it emerge from an inner place. You may be given this and not know why. Something in you will tell you this is the time. Let it choose you. Take a moment. And when you have a sense of what that is, whether it makes sense to you or not, Draw your hands on your clock. Take a moment, and it helps to actually do this, not just think about it, because there's something visual about that clock face, and you have it in front of you, and you say, my goodness. So just take a moment, just take a breath, and I'll be quiet just for a moment. You may like to think some more about that later. It may be something that you need to ponder. But if you did put something on your clock, I wonder what it means to you. Does it surprise you? Does it challenge you? What possibility might it hold for you? What's exciting about it? What's daunting? What emotions accompany this choice, this discernment? Are the sad or difficult feelings? Are the hopeful feelings? Notice them kindly. Have compassion on yourself. And if this is the time for me now, what do I need to do? What action might follow? Now, a metaphor can speak more powerfully and at a deeper level than if I simply asked you what you intended to do with the rest of your life. If I asked you that, we might have an interesting conversation. But a metaphor can just come a bit left field and surprise us. It brings you up short, perhaps makes you think, 
my goodness, why did I say three o'clock? Do I need to wake up from my afternoon lethargy? Or maybe something in me is telling me it's five to midnight. Why is that? And unlike life, the clock can be wound back and it can say a different time every time you look at it. So have a think about what it means for you. It may lead to change of some kind. Metaphor bypasses our rational thinking a little bit. And although thinking is useful, metaphor allows us to think about uncomfortable truths, which sometimes we're protected from if we're in denial and self-justification when our minds are going round and round. So that's an example, just an example of how a metaphor can open up new ways of thinking. And there are lots of those in the book. That's kind of what it's all about. Now, I've found that as I talk with people who are exploring a sense of vocation, that they often wonder how they might hear from God, how they might know what their sense of call and direction and purpose is supposed to be. They wonder how God might speak to them and how they might hear it and how they would know. And you might have had that experience. Perhaps you've thought, I'd love to hear from God, but I never have. And how would I know if God spoke to me? It seems to happen to other people. It seems to happen in the Bible. But how would I know? Would I hear a voice? Would I have a revelation? Is it something hard to get hold of, like a phone ringing in another room? That was weird. <laughs> Some people talk about a call like that. It's, in, it's a phone, it's ringing in another room. But I hope it's for somebody else. Maybe it's not for me. It will go away, but it doesn't. And one day you have to think, maybe that phone call really is for me. Maybe I really will have to pick the phone up. And thinking can only take you so far. Listening to your life is about engaging with the raw material of experience, hopes, dreams, desires, and thoughts and feelings. Gut instincts are more important than we sometimes recognise. Now, have you had, and I'm sure you have because this is part of the human condition, that experience where you're going to do something and everything makes sense and you've thought it through and it's the perfect plan and you've been working up to it and everyone tells you you're on the right track and it's all good. But somewhere in the back of your mind, there's something and it's just going... That is a terrible idea. That is just going to go horribly wrong. And we think, no, 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 there's no reason to think that. It's all good. It all lines up. The money's right. The place is right. The house is right. The whatever it is, is all good. And if you ignore that little voice, how often have we found that later on we go, I really should have listened to that. I really should have paid attention. Or the converse, you know, you have a great idea, you're really excited about something, it makes no sense, everyone tells you you're crazy, but you do it and it's the most life-changing, transformative, door-opening, incredible thing that you ever could have done. And maybe you never look back and you think, I was so close to going, no, that's bad, don't do that. But I did, and wow, I'm so glad that I did. And how do we know? 
as we grow older, I think, we gradually learn to listen to our gut. And there's a reason for that, because I think God has actually made us that way. It's part of how God made us and how God speaks to us in this deep inner well of wisdom. We know more than we know how we know. How do we know things sometimes? It's a mystery. It doesn't all come through our head. We have this deep well of intuitive, God-given wisdom that is uh, part of our humanity. Uh, And we need to learn to trust it, even though we may think it's irrational. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that quantum physics and new ways of looking at the world scientifically and this is not my field, but I'm fascinated when I read little bits about it. If you read that stuff, we hear that everything is connected. The boundaries between things are illusory. I am connected to you, and you are connected to me, and all the boundaries of matter are actually, to some extent, illusion, and I flow into you, and you flow into me. And in some sense, I am you, and you are me. And this is not just kind of weird spiritual talk about mysticism or nirvana or unity, um, but it's actually scientific fact. And spiritual teaching about prayer, about intercession, about healing, about God, about spirit, insight and wisdom is not at all incompatible with what we are finding out through quantum physics and scientific discovery. And I don't even have the language to talk about that kind of thing. But it's amazing. That experiment they did, you might have heard of, where they they took the smallest part of matter that you can take uh, and they divided it and they put these different bits of molecules or whatever they were on different sides of the world and they changed one bit and they found that the other bit changed. Uh, And you think, how is that possible? Things that were connected and then separated are actually in some mysterious way still connected. Amazing. And this is the world that we live in. It's not all about rationalism. Our deep souls are aware of so much more than we know. And our dreams and our bodies and our souls will tell us things that we might be trying quite hard with our minds to ignore. There's wisdom available to us if we listen through our everyday experiences and encounters. I know somebody who uh, had a lot of dreams about car crashes. A weird thing, you might think. Um, But it was only when he began to listen to that dream and to realise that in his own life he was on a radical course to major collision that he woke up and said, I need to change something. So he took some, some very drastic action to withdraw from certain places and people and the dreams stopped the collision course that his inner spirit knew about, that he had been ignoring, needed to be addressed. One time I was trying to make a very big decision uh, myself and I was putting it off. Uh, And someone asked me, how will you know if you're going to make this decision? How will you know that it's the right thing to do? And I said, well, I'll have thought it through and I'll know it's not impulsive and I know it's not just a kind of reactive thing and that it all makes sense and it's the right thing to do. Not a bit of it. I went on like that for months. And one day I was driving down the road in my car and something in my body kind of 
shifted. I can't really describe it, but it was a kind of inner something. And in that nanosecond, I knew what I had to do, just like that. And I never looked back. There is this wisdom somewhere within us. So listen to your dreams, listen to your body, listen to what makes you laugh, or what feels heavy in your soul, because there you will find clues to your sense of vocation. So we have this inner wisdom. Now, I've spent a lot of time accompanying people, exploring a sense of call or direction um, or vocation. One of the things I also do is some coaching, vocational coaching, that kind of thing. But when I was a director of ordinance, I used to find that often people would come to my door and they would start telling me about a call to a very specific role or job. They'd come and tell me they wanted me, uh, they want to be a vicar, or they might tell me possibly that they had a particular lay role in line because that was also my job. But I didn't want to talk about that. I said, I don't want to talk about that. We're not going to talk about whether you're going to be a vicar or not. Um, let's talk about why you're on the earth. Let's talk about why you're here, why you're breathing. Um, what has God called you to be and to do at the most fundamental level? Irrespective of the church as an institution or an organisation, whether they're going to pay you, whether you wear special clothes or not, or anything like that, what is it really all about? And I said to one young woman who was thinking about ordination, I said, what, what's your deepest sense of call? Why are you here on this earth? And without a second's hesitation, she flashed back at me. She didn't even think about it. She said, to call the lost home to the Father's heart. Wow, I thought, isn't that incredible? That might not be something that you would feel was your sense of vocation, but she knew, she knew that's what she was all about. That was her energy, her passion, and her commitment. So from that point on, we went on to discuss, well, would ordination be a way that you would do that? Would that be the way that you would follow that through? And it just so happened that it was, but it might not have been. Now, just suppose that the church ceased to exist as an institution or as an organisation, and it couldn't give us special labels or special clothes at all. I wonder what would happen to our sense of vocation, particularly those of us um, that have been ordained. Some would feel that their deepest sense of identity had been compromised, perhaps. Others would say, no, my sense of vocation is deeper than that. For myself, I would say my own sense of priesthood is about being a holder, a bearer of the light. And if the Church of England ceases to exist, I will still believe that my task from God is to hold the light. Whatever that means, in whatever company I find myself, that light around which we gather to find purpose, meaning, grace, compassion, and healing. Now, I wonder if anybody ever asked you as a child, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, you don't hear it quite so much now, maybe because there's so many millions of things you can do. But the question tended, perhaps, to expect a something, if you know what I mean. A fireman, a doctor, a brain surgeon, a train driver, a nurse. 
a thing. But I wonder if the question might evoke a different kind of response. Have you ever heard anyone say, as opposed to being a doctor or a nurse or a brain surgeon, I'd like to be a fully integrated human being, living out responsible and compassionate care for the planet and my fellow human beings. Wouldn't that be a great answer? If someone said that to me, I'd think that was a great vocation. And then you have to work out how. But you have to work out your purpose before you become specific. You have to work through the layers. So it's good to put things in perspective. Now, I'm going to have to move on fairly quickly through all these lots of things I want to say, so I'm going to skip to the next bit, which is all about how God calls us by name. And sometimes in retreat contexts, I draw on the idea of how important our name is. Have you ever noticed how important names are in Scripture? At significant times, God says, I'll give you a new name, or I'm going to change your name, because the name that I'm going to give you is a promise and a call, and it's to do with who you're supposed to be and what I'm going to give you to do. Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Simon Peter, Saul who became Paul, all these. And Jesus often uses people's names to address them. And perhaps most poignant of all, I love this episode, is that moment in the resurrection garden when Jesus speaks to Mary by name. And she's there and she's upset and she's distracted uh, and she sees Jesus and he says to her, Mary, just her name and her whole world is changed. And from that moment of restoration and hope, there comes the sense of vocation to go and tell. But it begins in that moment with her name. Have you ever heard God speak your name? And if you were to sit quietly in a prayerful moment, what might you hear? You might hear the name that you were given at your baptism if you're baptised. Or perhaps you would hear a different name, one that God is gifting you with as a sign, as a promise. Beloved or precious or advocate, champion, gentle one, leader, caller of the lost. I wonder what you would hear. You might know that hymn by Francis Ridley Havergal, which includes the lines, Speak to me by name, O Master. Let me know it is to me. Speak to me that I may follow faster with a step more firm and free. Speak to me by name. To hear one's name is one of the most powerful intimate and compelling experience there is. And if you're not sure how to pray, if you're not sure how God is calling you, what your sense of direction or purpose might be, start with a space in which you hear God call you by name. And that experience will remind you that you are loved, that you're a human being made in the image of God. And it's to that point and to the back of your handout that I want to turn now. That diagram is just a bit of an overview 
of a kind of vocational process. Because some people want to start with knowing what they're supposed to do. And they wait and they listen and they say, I'm waiting for God to tell me what my vocation is. Well, I have good news for you. You don't need to wait for God to speak to you before you can start living vocationally. Our most fundamental sense of vocation is to be and to express what we actually are. That is, human beings made in the image of God and intended to reflect something of God's love, light, healing, compassion and grace, as well as God's creative energy and passion. We can do this in very ordinary ways. And the first box on the left-hand side of your paper uh, says something about this. It's about our vocation as human beings made in the image of God. You don't need any special guidance from God to begin to ask questions like, how am I doing in my humanity? Do I look after my health, my relationships, my family? Am I a responsible human being looking after the planet? Do I have habits and addictions that maybe I could address? How is my work? Am I learning? Am I developing? How do I take part in the community? Do I uh, relate to money in a responsible way? And some people have a rule of life. If any of you are part of uh, groups like the Third Order of St. Francis or the Benedictine uh, Oblates, um, then you may be part of a group where they encourage you to have a rule of life, which is not about rules, it's about how you shape all those topics and what you commit yourself to. Now, I know someone who has a job that she is not happy in. She would leave it if she could, and there is no way that she feels that that job is her vocation. But she goes to work every day knowing that her call is to live as a human being made in the image of God with kindness and grace, efficiency, compassion, uh, and all the things that we are called to be. Even if you would leave that job, that's not your call but you have a call in the midst of it. Now the second stage, moving on swiftly to this vocational journey, also needs no special revelation because it's common sense and basic Christian teaching. If you are a Christian and you are called by baptism to be the disciple of Jesus, then there are certain things that we know are our vocation. We have a spiritual framework, a prayer, the sacraments, service, being part of a worshipping community, being good stewards of all that we've been given, seeking the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, all those things. And you don't need a voice from God. It's all there in our teaching, our scriptures, the path to follow. And only then, when we have those kind of things in place, can we begin to move to, okay, so what, what is my special invitation to participate? Matthew Lynn, in one of his books, called it The Sealed Orders. What is the that specifically God is calling me to do? And again, some of the reflections in the book invite us to think about particular gifts and vulnerabilities. I never use the language of gifts, uh, strengths and weaknesses, because when is a strength a weakness? And when is a weakness a strength? I prefer the language of gifts and vulnerabilities. Now, vulnerability may also be a gift 
if you have a soft place in your heart, a wound or a scar, it may be the greatest gift for others that you have. So the way to begin to discover your purpose and your call is to slow down, to listen, to find space. Sometimes we have to try things out. Once upon a time, a friend of mine sat in my kitchen and she cried because she was looking after the toddler group and she needed help and it was all very stressful. And I found myself saying, it was one of those, I should have listened to my gut moments, because I'm a nice person, I found myself saying to my friend, I'll help you with the toddler group, I'll, I'll come on a Tuesday. And afterwards I thought, I don't, I don't like that stuff with glue and scissors, it's kind of not my thing. Um, but it was there to be done, and for a time I did, and maybe it helped. But a few months later, I did say, you know what, this really isn't my thing. Tuesday seems to come round so fast. Um, and I'm sure there's at least six Tuesdays in the week now when I have to go and do this thing with glue and scissors. I could do that with my own children, but sitting around the table doing it with other people's children, I just found a bit of a struggle. But sometimes we can't be picky. Sometimes we have to do what's there to be done. But I did know after that, first of all, listen to your gut. And second of all, when you're looking for your sense of vocation, Julia, glue and scissors is not it, so we'll pull that one out. That's not it. We can discount that from the equation. So we have to take time. You could read the book, if you're interested in reading the book, very quickly. And you could toy with some of the ideas and you could think that's interesting. But actually, you'll probably only really find that it's helpful if you actually take the time go away somewhere and actually take the piece of paper, because most of them involve a piece of paper, the reflection of the book, and actually get a pen and actually create a listening space. Because the reflections aren't magic, um, they're not anything special really, they're just thresholds, they're just invitations. What's actually needed is a deep encounter with God, with your deepest self with your, the spirit in which you listen to your dreams, your imagination, your life. So, in conclusion, at every vocations event and every vocational conversation that I've ever had, my prayer, whether I have spoken it or not, has always been that God would surprise, would challenge and would transform. And that remains my prayer and my hope and perhaps one way to be open to that is to play a little with metaphor and imagination. I call it listening to your life, listening to your God-given, spirit-breathed, full of possibility life. And what time is yours? Thank you. I believe we have some time for questions. So uh, I'm very happy to respond to anything that strikes you coming out of what I've said. It may have raised questions for you or thoughts in your minds. Um, so 
let's take a little bit of time to try and engage with whatever's emerged for you. Anybody want to? Uh, yes. If God tells you to do something and it's not against your, it's not within your thinking capability, mm. how long do you wait till you actually do it and now repeat it? Ah, right, okay. Let me just try and recap the question. So this is a question about if God asks you to do something or tells you to do something and it's not within your capability or capacity as you see it at that moment, how long do you wait before you are obedient? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, Some people would say uh, God only calls us to do the things that we are able to do. You might remember that great, um, there's a little bit in one of Corrie Ten Boom's books uh, where she's worried about something or other and uh, she's praying about it and she's reminded of what her father used to say to her. Some of you might have read this and he used to say to her when she was a child, Corrie, when do I give you your ticket for the train? I don't give it to you the day before or the week before or even the hour before, I give you the ticket when you get on the train. So it may be that we have to discern what the next thing is that we can do. And as we do the next thing that we can do or that we see as possible, we are given what we need. And that's that's a strong biblical theme, isn't it? That you're given what you need in the moment. Uh, The pots of oil overflow, the 5,000 affair, whatever it is. There's a great bit in one of them, um, uh, it's one of those films with Harrison Ford in, is it the one about the Holy Grail or something, you know the one I mean, uh, and he's, he's doing this challenge thing, um, and the instructions are to uh, step off this cliff, you remember that bit? And he goes, well I can't step off this cliff because I'm going to fall into this great chasm, but as he steps off the cliff he actually finds there's a, there's a rock which is hidden that's like a stepping stone Um, and only as he steps off the plank or the side of the rock rather than falling to his death he finds himself on a firm footing so I don't know if that answers the question (laughs) but sometimes we have more than we think we have I'll tell you something actually Uh, here I am talking to you and probably I hope looking vaguely like I know what I'm doing When I was a child, I was so terrified of speaking in front of anybody that I was incapable of saying my two times table. And the teacher had to hear me say it privately because the thought of standing up in class and saying my two times table, age seven, was so horrific and so terrifying that I couldn't possibly do it. And the first time I ever preached a sermon, I wished I would die. I was at theological college. And I thought, oh, I have to. Pre- oh, I can't. How am I going to do that? I prayed that I would get the flu, um, that the church <laughs> would burn down, <laughs> that anything, anything would happen, as long as I did not have to preach this sermon. I just, it was. I felt ill for a week, a month. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. And I got to the church, um, and the vicar said, "And we welcome Julia tonight." And Julia tells me uh, that this is the first time that she's preached a sermon. And I thought. Well, that's, that's really helpful. That makes me feel even worse. But you know what? It was all right. And it probably wasn't the best sermon in the world. But it happened. And 
I've preached in a lot of places since then, and maybe it's still not my number one favourite thing to do, but God gives you what you need. Does that answer the question enough? <laughs> okay, what, what, else, what else is around uh, for people? Yes? Right. Uh, let me see if I've got this right. So this is a question about you're going to make a decision and some wise Christians advised you in a particular way and said don't do it. And you're wondering, or were wondering, or still are wondering? Well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think... We don't make decisions on our own. Uh, part of guidance and listening to vocation uh, is seeking what others give to us. And when I worked as a director of ordinance, I often used to say to people, you sit here and you think God is speaking to you um, and you're telling me that you think God is calling you in this particular direction but the exploration of vocation is like digging a tunnel from two ends. You know how that happens at the same time. So me as an individual, I'm digging my tunnel and I'm trying to work out what God is saying and what I think is right. And I'm saying I think God wants me to be ordained or whatever it is. And at the same time, there are people in the church, bishops, ministry division, directors of ordinance, people like me, advisors selectors who are thinking well what what do we need what do we want what's God saying and I meet you um, and I think you know it is what's God saying to me about about you and sometimes those two things come together and your discernment and the church's discernment comes together but sometimes it doesn't and then we have to work out what's going on but discernment is shared however it is also true that sometimes we do have to go it alone and that actually there comes a point when we say to ourselves despite the counsel that I'm being given despite uh, what others are saying to me this truly feels right and I don't think there's an easy answer to that except that you have to Think it through, yes, thoughts. You have to feel it through. You have to listen to your dreams. And your dreams will tell you a lot in that kind of situation. Listen to your dreams because in that deep place of inner wisdom, you may find access to some other way of looking at it that you can't get to just by trying to think, should I listen to my friends? Should I listen to the church? I, mm, what, what do I do? What do I do? I think it's a deepening process and we go deep into our God-given inner wisdom. And sometimes a dream will tell you something that you had no other means of, of, of knowing about. Um, I dream a lot. I think I got it from my mother, actually. She used to have the most incredible dreams and dream in colour. And it was all very complicated. Uh, and I've inherited some of that. So sometimes I have to work out if my dreams are just completely crazy or if they're actually telling me something. And sometimes they are telling me something. So I haven't really given you a very helpful answer, I'm afraid. But at the end of the day, you will need to listen to your deepest heart. So I would encourage you to do that. Yes. I've heard about it 
that's all right. Yes. That's right. So, was that, when I think about the time of my life now in this moment, mm. it's not to do anything with my age, no. it's to do with how I feel. Exactly, exactly. It's all to do with how you feel. And of course, morning, afternoon and night mean different things to us anyway, don't they? Some people might think, well, six o'clock, end of the day, I'm going to watch the news, Coronation Street, have a drink and go to bed. Other people might think, six o'clock, I've done my work. I'm going out. I don't need to come back until two o'clock tomorrow morning. You know, so different times of day mean different things. So it's, this is why thinking about it intuitively rather than, oh, what does that mean? It may offer a, a way in. Anything else? So, yes. Um, do you think the concept of vocation is uh, specific and kind of set or... Mm. Yes. Uh, this is a question about whether the concept of vocation is, is specific or whether it's open-ended and flexible. Tell me if I've misinterpreted this, but I, I think um, the way I would approach that would be to say, I don't think that God necessarily calls us to very particular things such as being a vicar, or being a teacher, or being a, a this or a that. I think there is a deeper undercurrent that we are called to. So for someone who, who does have a vocation, for example, in teaching, or in medicine, or in social care, it might not be a vocation to that partic particular job, but it might be to the reasons, the motivation, the passions, that underpin that job. And like I was saying about this lady that I spoke to who said her deepest sense of vocation was to call the lost home to the father's heart. There are lots of ways you could do that. Somebody else might have a vocation um, that is to do with educating children or encouraging children or being uh, someone that heals uh, in some way. And I think we, we can look at the different ways. And when we are presented with an option, a possibility, a job, uh, we need to say, how does that mesh with my deepest sense of who I am and why I'm here? Is this job going to fulfil my sense of vocation? If it does, to enough of a degree, because sometimes life is the art of the possible and involves compromises, then we might want to do that. At one point in my life, I was in a diocesan job, and it was all to do with training uh, it was a job that a lay person could have done, and I had some lay colleagues. And I used to think to myself, uh, I love doing this job, this is a, a good job to have, um, but my deepest sense is to some expression of this priest, priesthood that I feel called to. And if there comes a point where this job that I'm doing doesn't seem to fit with this deep sense of call to priestly ministry, then I'll know that that maybe isn't the right job for me anymore. And, and so there, there may be something against which you test what you're doing and say, well, does that fit with, with what is most important? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. How are we doing? We're okay for a few minutes. 
So there's a couple of things. Let me speak to this lady and then I'll come over to you. Is that all right? Let me come to this lady here first and then I'll come. Yes. Now, that's quite a complicated question. It's a question about should we be distrustful of our gut instinct? Um, yes and no. It's one aspect of how we receive guidance and how we discover our sense of vocation. Our gut instinct may be uh, coloured by childhood experiences, by distorted theology, and there are one two examples of this kind of thing in, in, in the book. So if, for example, we have an image of God that is very harsh and very judgmental and, and quite um, headmasterish, that may actually impact how our gut instinct is. So we think about doing something and, and the, the gut instinct that we have is kind of affected by this image of God that we have that is very judgmental so we may feel a sense of disapproval or well you can't do that or you know well you'll never be good enough and that may feel like an inner thing but actually it's kind of being affected by the, by the image of God that we have that it maybe needs renewing or healing in some way so I think we always have to go deeper and, and into prayer and hear God call us by name and take time over it because I think if we're not sure, then we wait and we listen some more and we talk to wise people and, and find a spiritual director and test and test things out. And I think, uh, just a moment, um, in, uh, Ignatius of Loyola used to say, well, don't do anything in, in um, uh, desolation. You know, if, if, if you're not sure, if you're not sure this is leading you to God, then, then wait. Now I'm conscious of the time. There's a lady over here at the back and then I'm going to come to you and then we may be. I think we're okay. Yes? So what would you say to someone who's um, maybe likes a lot of things and then finds it essentially uncomfortable about myself? So That's all right. Um, <laughs> yeah, likes a lot of things, um, yeah. And then that's maybe led to the conclusion that yeah. you're finding it difficult to become a voice because you've always said you're good at a lot of things but not maybe... Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the first thing that comes to mind, um, and I don't mean this to be a sort of advert, but I'll just give it as an example, is one of the things I put in the book um, is it uses the metaphor of a roundabout. And on this roundabout, it can have various exits. And one of the things you can do is take a big sheet of paper and put a sort of roundabout in the middle of it and draw some possible exits. And you can kind of think, well, I could do this or I could do that. And here's a signpost. And this might take me that way or that might take me this way and lay it all out and look at it and see how it feels and see what emotions are evoked and what is generated within you and that may move you forward so you know it's a good thing if you've got lots of possibilities the other thing i think that's important is that and this goes back a little bit to an earlier question is I don't personally believe that there is one path that we have to take in life. I don't believe that God has a kind of blueprint. and That's what we have to do, and if we step off it, then we've kind of failed. It's not like a sat-nav um, that kind of goes, well, that's the way you've got to go. Oh, no, now you've completely messed up. I'm going to have to 
recalibrate. I think with God, we follow, we seek, we discern. But God, and again, this is kind of in the book, God recycles things. God works with us as we are and who we are. And today has its vocational possibilities. Um, so thank you for that question. Um, I'm going to come over here, and then Mark might be about to jump in. Uh, can you say something about accountability groups? Now, yes. uh, it's my, yes. my vicar. Mm. Um, his, I think his greatest um, sense was to, to, to want the congregation to be more into uh, mm. accountability groups. And he <coughs> felt that mm. some of his biggest decisions he had mm. shared with mm. his uh, accountability group. Absolutely. Absolutely. Accountability groups. Um, I've I've heard of these. Accountability groups can be really wonderful places where you can share what's happening. You can bring perhaps decisions, or you can give your accountability group permission. Uh, I certainly have friends who who've done this. They say to their accountability group, uh, "You have permission to ask me about anything." my family, my drinking, my money, my job, you can ask me anything. And I want to be transparent and I feel protected because you know, I'm, I've got nowhere to hide. So you, you challenge me. I think there's probably a spectrum here, but accountability groups at their best and most effective and spirit-inspired can be places of great uh, strength, of collaboration, of protection, of wise counsel, of prayerful discernment and, and support which has integrity and, and love. There is another end to the spectrum, um, and that is perhaps where people might not listen properly or they might give advice which feels um, incomplete or, or misguided or uh, motivated for, in the wrong way for some reasons, and then power starts to creep into the equation. So I would say accountability groups are probably a great thing. They probably need checking once in a while to kind of go, is this working? Uh, and if, as, as in so many places in life, if, if at the end of the day, if something within us is going, I'm not comfortable with this, this doesn't sit right, I feel constrained by it in some way, that there's dissonance. Um, dissonance is often a sign that something needs addressing. So if your accountability group feels wholesome and good and life-giving, then wonderful, give thanks for it. If it starts to create any kind of dissonance, then it might be worth looking at what's going on. Does that...? Um, I, I think that's really good. Um, mm. I, I think, you know, there is a spectrum within the church that makes Absolutely. a accountability group. And, and I think we should hear that sort of message. Absolutely, absolutely. I think Mark is going to come and... <laughs> I don't know about time of life, but it's sort of time to... <laughs> it's, time to it's time to draw to a close, absolutely. Um, oh, you've, come, you've come disconnected. What's at the heart of my faith? And, uh, and some people have heard me put it this way, that um, I, I believe that God's given everybody here the, the gift of being uh, and you can give a gift back and that's your becoming who you become with that that being 
Uh, and that sounds lovely and very sort of Canon Oakley-ish, but um, actually it's hard work to discern uh, what that becoming might be for you. And uh, I've developed over the years a sort of bubble and squeak theology, you know, sort of God opens a fridge and uses what's there. Uh, but, but you've sort of got to open the fridge somehow and find yourself... Um, and um, I, I've enjoyed reading this very much because, as I say, it's, it's practical. There are, there are metaphoric little uh, exercises for you to engage in, to break out of the, of the logical. It's very difficult, of course, to distrust the irrational uh, in this day and age. Um, but one of the things we have in common is, of course, our books, our new books came out at the same yes, time by the yeah. same publisher. Yeah. And I was, I was just finally very aware that one of the poems I have in my book is by a Persian uh, poet who, who lived around the same time as Chaucer on the other side of the world called uh, Hafiz. And he wrote, you know, sometimes we have to pull the chair out from under our mind in order that we can just fall on God. And he was whirling around in my head as I heard you talking, um, that sometimes we have to pull the chair out. And um, I don't know about listening to your life, but I've certainly enjoyed listening to you. <laughs> and uh, on behalf of us all here, thank you so much for thank being here. Thank you very much. And uh, the books are going to be for sale in a moment. Usually they're twelve ninety nine, but hot off the press today, they're going to be ten pounds. So you've got two ninety nine discount. Um, I hope that you um, have been able to pick up uh, future forum debates. We've got on Tuesday under the dome upstairs Nadia Boltzweber and the Reverend Richard Coles. Uh, in dialogue with me, please think about me. I'm in between the two of them. Uh, I'm getting sleepless nights and dreams about that, actually. Um, uh, and then also, uh, on um, there are forums to come, but also uh, on the 8th of November, uh, the next person under the dome is me talking about this new book. So uh, lots to go on, and please do make sure that you've got all the information you need, which is on the table as well. Thank you very much for coming, and a very safe journey home. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you.